such rich hymns that we have to sing these days. And I appreciate all of you singing as well. It makes it easier for me to preach when I'm boosted up with the singing of the saints. This is what we call our Good Friday service. Not because we don't talk about the cross the rest of the year, but traditionally in church history, it's been called Good Friday because of what happened on the Friday before Passover. And it's good because our Lord did something for us. How can death be bad? How can such a gruesome death be a good thing? Because if he hadn't done it, we wouldn't be saved. And that makes it good. And because God planned it, that makes it good. And it's okay to call it Good Friday for those reasons and so many more. Tonight I want to bring to you a message entitled, The Cross, God's Love Displayed. And if you would, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10, but I want to read to you, starting back in verse 7, uh, to give you some context. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be their propitiation for our sins. Amen. What a passage. A little girl once wrote a newspaper and asked, how can we measure love? And I don't even know what the newspaper said, but you know what the world says about love. How do we measure love? How do we know if we're loving others? How do we know if they're loving us? Often you'll get an answer like feelings. Something to do with their feelings or emotions. I feel love. I fell in love. I do love the person. It must be obvious because I said it. Other times people will say certain actions show love. But they're not always actions that are biblical. Not actions that are godly. To affirm somebody even in their sin is called love today. And even though we're told over and over in our culture to listen to your hearts. We know that that's not good. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are evil. If it wasn't for God changing our hearts as believers, we would constantly be coming up with more and more sin from our hearts to do. Now, if we want to see love, we look to Scripture. We look to God. And especially at the cross. I didn't count how many times that the cross and love are in conjunction with each other in a passage, but I'm sure it comes up over and over and over. Just thinking of Ephesians 5, of how a husband is supposed to love his wife. He's supposed to love his wife like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificially died. A passage that directly tells us to love our spouse, husbands, to love your wife like Christ loved his church and continues to do so. Well, here we see the Father and the Son, and we see the love that the Father poured out on the elect as He sent His Son into the world. And really, verses 9 and 10 of 1 John chapter 4 are the ultimate display of God's love for His elect. The ultimate display. How do we see God's love displayed? 
in the life of his son and in the cross. And that's really the two points of the sermon today. What do I look to learn about God? What do I look to learn about salvation? What do I look to learn about God's love? The Bible. It's the only place we can go. Where else are you going to go? You go to the world, they tell you something different. You go to books that aren't scripture. They'll tell you their own opinions. You go to some churches and they will mislead you on this. You've got to go to the Bible. And here we have a high view of Scripture. We have a high view of God. And we want to turn to Scripture and see what it has to teach us even tonight about the cross. The message is the cross, God's love displayed. And we're going to see God's love displayed to believers in two ways on the cross. And you'll see these points come up later in the sermon. But I'll give them to you. First of all, the life of Christ was shown in us. So God's love was displayed in the fact that the life of Christ was shown in us. And you could even say is present tense shown in us. And secondly, the wrath of God was satisfied for us. Now the Apostle John, he's writing this letter to churches. There's been a problem at some of these churches in Asia Minor. And the Apostle John is sort of the apostle over these churches. He's helping them. He's ministering to them. One of the last apostles alive at this time. And there's been a church split. There's been disruption, division. And the people at the churches, the true churches that have remained, want to know if what they believe is true. And so what John's been doing in 1 John is just telling them the truth and saying, if you agree with this, then you are saved. How do you know if you're a Christian? If you agree with the fact that the Son of God came into the world. The Son of God who came into the world and took on flesh. And he just goes through all of this doctrine throughout 1 John. And he comes now to 1 John chapter 4, and he starts talking about, in verse 7, loving one another. And really, that's his theme throughout the rest of chapter 4. So we're sort of diving into the middle of this section on how to love one another, and that we should love one another. Because that's who God is. God is love. And right in the middle, we see the example of God's love in verses 9 and 10. This isn't just a theological tome. It's not just a systematic theology. This is John's letter to real churches, real Christians who are struggling. Struggling to know if they're truly in the faith, if they believe true doctrine. Or maybe the people who left were the true believers and the ones who remain that are in contact with John are not true believers. They're struggling with that and John's trying to reassure them. And so he says, remember God's love Love one another, and here's how you see God's love. First of all, the life of Christ was or is shown in us. That's verse 9. And what he's going to say here is, for those who believe in Jesus, those who believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, then they're going to show everyone else. They're going to show everyone else by the way they live that the Son of God was incarnate. The Son of God came in the flesh. But I want you to see here at the beginning and the end of this first phrase. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. How do you see the love of God? By this, John says. By this thing I'm about to tell you. You see the love of God manifested. 
the Greek word there for manifested, phanareo, it means to cause to become known, disclose, show, make known. This is how God has shown his love. This is how God has displayed his love to the world. How did he do it? In us. Now, the first time I preached this passage, I took verse 7 through 10, and I didn't slow down to really talk much about in us or even meditate much on this little phrase. What does that mean, though, that God manifested his love, past tense, in us, in believers? It's referring to the fact that God, through Christ, indwells all believers. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means that Christ is in you and you're in Christ. You're united with Jesus Christ. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He lives in you. You live in Him. And it's saying here, not that we're little gods. That's a heresy. A heresy taught by prosperity preachers. That you're a little god so you can do what you want and call things into creation and all the money that you want. He's not saying that. He's not talking about incarnational ministry, which was sort of a popular phrase for a while due to Mark Driscoll the last decade or so, where you're supposed to go out and live a certain way to to sort of incarnate Jesus before people. That's not what he's saying. No, the meaning here is that because Christ indwells all believers, we are to show people through our life the gospel, Christ, God's love. We are a sign. It's not even like we're actively doing it. Just living your life as a Christian means that you're a sign to the world of what Christ has done, of what God the Father has done. Sometimes Bible scholars have struggled with this, but it's the same exact language we see in John, the Gospel of John, if you want to go there, Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 3. You remember the the man born blind that Jesus healed. And it had never been done since the creation of the world that a man born blind, meaning he probably didn't even have all the components for his eyes to work. It's never been done that that man could see, that he could have been healed. And so they're amazed at what had happened. But before that healing takes place, his disciples ask, who sinned? Did this man sin or his parents? Because that's the only way somebody could be blind. In the ancient world, they thought, if you have a disease, if you're crippled, then you must have been cursed. And Jesus answered, John 9, 3, It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him, might be manifested in him, might be shown in him. Meaning through this man being healed by Christ, he is showing other people, the Sanhedrin, all the Jews in Jerusalem, his parents. He's showing other people the glory of God, the power of God. And so John's saying over here in 1 John, same author that wrote the, the Gospel of John, the same guy that was there seeing this blind man healed, John says, God's love is shown in us. And he's saying past tense, John and, and his apost- the apostles with Jesus and all believers at that time. But it applies to us as well today, all believers. All believers are living the Christian life and we're showing God's love. Not by miracles, no, that's not what he's saying. Not by having this great power, no. Just by living the Christian life. The love of God is displayed within each believer. Look at the rest of the phrase. 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. This is the love of God. It was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. And then he goes on to say, at the end of that verse, so that we might live through him. So let's break that into two parts there. Let's talk about the only begotten and then living through him. That God, that's God the Father, has sent his only begotten Son, that's God the Son, into the world. We're looking at the doctrine called the Trinity. The Trinity. It's, it's an essential doctrine in the Christian faith. Some have said the most important distinguishing doctrine of Christianity. No other religion believes in such a doctrine as the Trinity. And it's a, it's a big question these days to ask, are Muslims saved? Do they worship the same God? Do Mormons worship the same God as we do? Jehovah's Witnesses? Oneness Pentecostals? No, they deny this doctrine of the Trinity. They deny what's taught right here in this verse. What is the Trinity? It's within the one being that is God. There eternally exists three co-equal and co-eternal persons, each of whom is fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's no other religion, there's no other cult, there's no other sect of Christianity that says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, except biblical Christianity. That's it. It's an essential. In fact, when we have new people join our church, we go through the essentials of the faith. And just to become a member, you've got to agree to the essentials, that you believe those, because every believer should believe those. Once presented to the truth, they should agree with it. And so when the Father here is sending His Son, we're getting a glimpse of the work of the Trinity. And it's hard enough to grasp the the Trinity, but the work of the Trinity sometimes is even harder. Jonathan Edwards said, I think the doctrine of the Trinity to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries. You can study it and study it and study it and keep on studying like so many doctrines of God, but especially with the Trinity. James White in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, says that the Trinity is the highest revelation God has made of himself to his people. It's the capstone, the summit, the brightest star in the firmament of divine truths. We're getting a glimpse of what's happening here. The Father sent his only begotten Son. The doctrine of the Trinity is not simply just one doctrine among all the others in the Bible. It's fundamental. It's it's the fundamental whole of the Christian faith. That's why we're to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this doctrine about our great God is so important in the Christian faith. It deserves more time in the pulpit. It deserves more time in our Bible study. Don't just read past Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Bible. Stop and ask yourself, what are you learning about the Trinity in those passages? What are we learning here? That the Father planned something and and sent His Son to accomplish it. Here's how the love of God was manifested in us, revealed to us, John says. Now you see the word sent? That's in Greek, that means he was sent on a specific mission. And theologically, it means that he was already existing, doesn't it? How can a son be sent if he didn't already exist? Some people doubt the deity of Christ. Some cults that I just named. Don't believe in the deity of Christ. But 
The fact that he got sent implies that he was already existing before he came. He's always been the son in eternity past. He didn't become the son when he came to earth. He's always been the son. Think about it. The most holy God, the Father, sent his perfect holy God, the Son, into this rotten sinful world. And it was all planned and accomplished by a perfectly holy God. And what happened? What happened when the Son came? He took on flesh. It's called the incarnation. It's really what we're talking about here, the life of Christ, the incarnation, the fact that God the Son took to himself a human nature, that divinity took on flesh. Deity, divinity, wasn't minimized. It wasn't subtracted. It wasn't canceled out. God didn't take a human body and and pluck the soul out and put the divinity in. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Two natures, one person. And the Father did not send the Son to figure out what He was supposed to do. What does the verse say? That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that there was a purpose to His coming. Jesus didn't show up and wonder, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to save? It was predetermined. That's why God the Father sent Him. It was, it was predestined. A purpose that the Father gave. Let's focus in on this word begotten. Some translations today have dropped the begotten. I think it should be there. I like begotten. It is sometimes hard for us to understand how, how can God the Father beget God the Son. Begetting is something humans do, having children. But I think it should be here. It's more than just one and only, unique. A lot of translations have replaced only begotten with the one and only or unique Son. It's true, He's the one and only Son. There's no other Son of God the Father. But it's more than that. It's, it's more than that. When this term is used of the second person of the Trinity, the Son here, it's talking about His essence, His eternal essence. That He's without beginning. He's without succession. That's how the Chalcedonian Creed put it back in the 400s. And that He is generated, not meaning that He's born. Obviously, His human nature had a time that it was conceived by the Holy Spirit and came into the world, born. But here we're talking about his divinity. This is a deep doctrine. Only begotten son was sent. So he's the only begotten son before he takes on flesh. So what does generated mean? Well, theologians say it's the fact that he asserted an eternal relationship with the father. So the father is continually generating the son, meaning there's an eternal relationship there. That's as far as we can go. Like so many times in theology, that's as far as we can go. I like only begotten. I think it should be there. And a lot of study now in the ancient Greek writings show that it was a term often used to mean more than just one and only. So why did the Father send the Son? Well, first John says, so that we believers might live through Him. This gives the purpose here. A so that statement is the purpose. The purpose of the Son of God being sent into the world. That He would have life and that He would give life to us. Life now and life forevermore. John's saying, even now in this life, we are living through Christ. If you're a believer, you're living through Christ and you're displaying the love of God. 
You're a sign to the world. That doesn't mean you shouldn't tell other people about the gospel, right? They're not just going to look at your life, automatically know they're a sinner, God is holy, that he died on the cross and rose again for three days. You've got to tell them that. You've got to use words. But John is saying that the way you live and the way you speak and the way you raise your family and the way you work and the way that you fight sin and stay away from sinful places, that says something to the world. You're saying something about God the way you live. Eternal life that the Father and Son and Spirit have always shared is now ours. Not in the same way that they have eternity, but we are going to live forever and ever, John says. We have life now and forevermore in Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 32, He, talking about God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? We only know what love is because God showed us. God showed us right here in the Bible. He showed us on the cross. That's what love is. The wonder of God's grace is that anyone is saved at all. God didn't have to do this. He didn't have to save us, and He didn't have to come back later and tell us what happened in our salvation. But He explains it all throughout the New Testament, doesn't He? Here's what the cross meant. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John Calvin, the reformer, says, This is a more than wonderful goodness which ought to ravish our minds with amazement. When you're reading the Bible, don't just read through it and think, that's great, next page, got to get this reading plan checked off, got to keep up, got to catch up, I'm behind. Sometimes just take a verse like this and stop and think about it. What does it mean that the Father sent His only begotten Son so that we might live? Meditate on it. Now sometimes believers will say, that's great, I'm saved, I understand what happened, but, but God's angry at me. God's upset with me. I'm not living the way that he told me to. I'm in sin. And I feel like God doesn't love me. Now, it might be true that you are in sin. It might be true that God is disciplining you. But God doesn't ever exhaust his love for his people. If he sent his only begotten son into the world and you display his love just as being a, being a Christian, you're displaying his love, he's not going to run out of love for you. Discipline, in fact, is a type of love, isn't it? If God showed his love to us by sending his son to die for us, how can his mercy and grace to us ever run out? I like what Charles Spurgeon had to say. He said, when a child of God thinks he's exhausted the patience and the mercy of God, he's something like a little fish in the sea, which said, Oh, I'm so thirsty. I'm afraid I shall drink up the Atlantic. Oh, little fish, Spurgeon says, you have no idea how mighty the ocean is. We can't exhaust the love of God. The eternal God sent his eternal son into the world so that we might live through him. We can't exhaust God's love. Well, secondly, let's look now at the wrath of God. It was satisfied for us. So God's love is displayed to believers in two ways at the cross. We just looked at the life of Christ was shown in us. And then number two, the wrath of God was satisfied for us. That's verse 10. You might remember a few years ago, there was kind of a controversy in the Presbyterian Church USA. The controversy came up because they were singing in church in Christ alone by the Gettys. You know that song we sing often here in Christ alone? 
And there was a line in there that they wanted to change. They didn't like it. And the line was, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Now that line is talking about what verse 10 is teaching here. The Presbyterian Church in America, not in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, that denomination wanted to change the lyrics. They're a liberal, progressive denomination. They said it was too offensive. They didn't believe that. And they just wanted to change it to the love of God was magnified. Cutting out this part about the wrath of God being satisfied. And Keith and Christian Getty said, no, can't do that. It's our song. We have the copyright. Thankful they did that. And so the Presbyterian Church USA dropped the hymn out of their hymnal. You see, for the world, this doctrine taught in verse 10 is very difficult. Because it's not just about the love of God, but it's about the wrath of God as well. And both are true. The world's misunderstood the love of God and completely ignored the wrath of God. Let's look at it here. Verse 10, in this is love. So again, this is love. He's telling us two things about God's love here in verses 9 and 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. So we've already seen that he sent his son. What does this mean? Not that we love God, but that he loved us. It means that we didn't love God first. Obviously, when God changes your heart, you start to love him. But John's saying we didn't love God first. God's not paying us back for the fact that we first loved him and then he's rewarding us with his love. That's not how it works. Look, um, later, I think it's 419. We love because he first loved us. How can we even love God? Because he first loved us. He did something first. We didn't do something first. We didn't do half. We didn't do 1%. God did it all first so we could love him. This is love. Not just a feeling, but it's an action. God did something. I feel love for you. Did God say that? God did something. He took action. Of course, God has emotions. Frank was just teaching us about that in his attributes class the other day. God has emotions, but God did something. He acted. He took action by sending his son to show us his love. Love is not just a feeling. It also encompasses actions. The Father's love is not some abstract feeling here. But it's seen clearly through his loving action of sending his son. And he showed love to people who hated him. He loved us first, even though we hated him. As an unbeliever, whether you admit it or not, you hated God. You either hated God through the actions, the way you lived your life, because you were trying to work off your salvation, or maybe you were just in complete rebellion as an atheist, witchcraft, whatever the world is into. But we never truly loved God before he changed our heart. John's getting at the doctrine of election, predestination. What's in Ephesians 1 verse 3? That he predestined us. That he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It has to be that way because we hated God first. Then he changes our heart through his love, through regeneration, through the Holy Spirit. And we love him. That's what Paul's getting at in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love. There it is again. He's he's manifesting. He's demonstrating it. He demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're saved while we're yet sinners. Then God does something first. Yes, we respond in faith and repentance. But it's God doing 
the first action. It's God doing all of the power and action that's needed for salvation. God gives it. God does it. Well, his love was shown for his elect by sending his son to save him. And again, as I said in the last verse, the the Greek word for sent isn't just a general word for sending, but it's sending on a specific mission with a specific purpose. It's a word often used in the Bible when um, a king would send an envoy of ambassadors on a mission. It's the word used when Jesus commissions his 12 apostles and sends them out, and later Paul as well. The Father sent the Son on a mission. He didn't just say, go into the world, Son, and figure it out. When I got saved, it was mainly due to this heretical movie on TV where Jesus supposedly didn't know who he was. He was trying to figure it out all along the way for his whole life. And it was a crucifixion scene that God used to eventually wake me up to the reality of the gospel. But I'll always remember, not only was I saved not long after watching that movie, but I was also thinking, how did Jesus not know who he was? Jesus knew. He came on a mission. He was sent by God. He had a specific purpose. What is it? Well, here's where John finishes. To be the propitiation for our sins. To be the propitiation for our sins. Christ himself, if we were just to translate it literally, because to be is inserted to help us. That he is the propitiation for our sins. He didn't become the propitiation. He himself is that. And before we talk about this big word, propitiation, we have to go to the end and just say, what does he mean by our sins? We can't understand propitiation without understanding our sins. That we've sinned. That God is perfect. That God is holy. That God is perfectly righteous. And we're all sinners. The Bible's clear on that. People try to argue sometimes today that they're not sinners. The Bible's clear. We're all sinners. There's no squeezing out of it. Romans 3, there's no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned. All, everyone. No one gets out of it. Not children, not adults, everyone. Not the person who grew up in church. Not the person who's been baptized. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have sinned past tense, and we continue to fall short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law. All of us. Everyone has broken God's law. And because of that, we deserve death. We deserve eternal death. We deserve eternal punishment. God has set up a place for eternal punishment. It's called hell. Eternal fire. Eternal darkness. Jesus says, a gnashing of teeth. Continual pain. And again, Paul says in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. There's no way to save ourselves. There's no way to work it off. Our sins have done something. They have been accredited to our account. And we have them there until God removes them. And he's only going to remove them in Christ, but we'll get to that. There's no way to save ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 for all of us to become like one who is unclean. All of us, he says. And he's speaking of all of Israel there. That applies to all of us today. All of us, unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, like a bloody rag. If you're trying to work towards God to save yourself, God says, get that bloody rag away from me. It's not worth anything. 
for your salvation. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, Isaiah says, like the wind, take us away. So without God doing something, our sin just takes us away from God. Takes us away in this life and eventually in eternity as well. And because of this, the wrath of God is upon us. The wrath of God hangs over us until God does something to save us. Now, this wrath arises because of His holiness. He's perfectly holy and He hates all sin. He cannot exist with others who've sinned. That's what God's wrath is defined as. An intense hatred for sin and ultimately sinners. I know you've heard, hate the sin, not the sinner. That's true for us. But the Bible says multiple times that God hates sinners. Sinners, people who continue on sinning their whole life and end up in eternal punishment because of it. That's why 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says that the unbelievers will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So if that's true, how can anyone be saved? If we've all sinned and we all deserve death, And we would all go to hell if God didn't do something. How does he bring about salvation? Well, that's where this one little word here, propitiation, comes in. And if you don't have it in your Bible, sorry, but you need to go to the bookstore after the service and get a new Bible that has this word in there. Now, some just say sacrifice, but that's not good enough. It's more than just a sacrifice. The word, we need to keep the word propitiation. It's a biblical word. Nobody else uses it in everyday language. It's only found here in the Bible. And that's okay because you can teach people what it means if they don't know. It's okay to leave theological words in the Bible instead of trying to continuously change it. It's an essential word for the Christian faith, or at least the doctrine that's taught by this word. What does it mean? It's the only word in English that properly conveys what happens to God's wrath at the cross. God has this wrath. Okay, Jesus redeems us, yes. But what about God's wrath? There's three main things that, by the way, that happen on the cross that we usually talk about. Redemption, propitiation, and reconciliation. Redemption is Christ buying us. He buys us from the slave market of sin. He buys us back. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to Satan. We're slaves to our own fleshly desires. He redeems us. And that's something we talk about often at the cross. He also reconciles us. He made peace with the Father, between us and the Father. But something that doesn't quite get as much airtime as propitiation. The Father's wrath is upon us. We're headed straight for the lake of fire, eternal punishment forever and ever. And here comes His Son doing this thing called propitiation. Not just doing it, but He actually is the propitiation. Here's the definition. The act of turning aside the wrath of the offended God by means of an appropriate sacrifice. God's wrath is on us. What do we do? We can't do anything. Christ comes, he dies on the cross, and it turns aside God's wrath. Yes, our sins are erased. Yes, we get Christ's righteousness. All glorious things that we've talked about other times. But also, God's wrath is turned aside. Let's look at some Old Testament verses to get an idea of what propitiation is. Go to Exodus 32, 30. We're going to look at a few verses in Exodus and Numbers. And the Old Testament word for this is kafar, which is often translated atonement. And that's fine in the Old Testament. 
the New Testament, propitiation is the right word. But you can think of atonement. As long as you remember, that's about the wrath of God. Exodus 32.30. This is after the golden calf. And you remember that God was going to destroy Israel for the golden calf incident. And in 32.30, on the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord, up to Yahweh. He's going back up the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, the same word that we translate propitiation in our passage in the New Testament is used here. That Moses can make propitiation for your sins. If you go forward now to Numbers, the book of Numbers, a couple of books forward here, number 16 and verse 45. You already got the sense from Moses that God will kill them if he doesn't do something. The same idea is found here in Numbers 16.45. This is after Korah's rebellion. There's murmuring. Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. That's what God said to Moses. Get away, Moses. I'm going to consume them all. You get the idea that they're all going to die either by plague or by fire. Verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in the fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement, make propitiation for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. So he's going to wipe them out by the plague. He often does that in numbers. And the plague's already started instantly. God says, get back, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out. They fall on their faces. And he tells Aaron, go make a propitiation. Now, neither of those that we just read about, Moses or Aaron, is a final propitiation. Only Christ can do that. But we're getting a sense for what the word actually means. Go forward to Numbers 25, 11 through 13. And again, we have a similar situation here. The book of Numbers is all about this. There's been a sin committed. And in 25, 11, let's go back to verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is God speaking to Moses. Here's what he says. Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel. God had a great wrath. He was going to wipe them out. They were intermarrying. They were bringing false gods into the camp. Phineas stopped that by running a spear through a man and a woman who were together in the tent. And God says he's turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made propitiation, atonement for the sons of Israel. Three verses where God's wrath is about to come upon them, and somebody has to do something. They do. They have to make an atonement, a propitiation. To satisfy God's wrath. So now this word comes up four times in the New Testament. Let's look at those verses. Romans chapter 3. Only four times, but important. Romans 3.25. While you're going there, I wanted to also add that in the Old Testament, remember that Greek translation of the Old Testament? 
Well, the high priest once a year was supposed to take an offering, a sacrifice, once a year into the Holy of Holies. And he would put it on this place called the mercy seat. We were singing about the mercy seat in one of the songs earlier. Well, that's called the propitiation place. In the Greek translation, it's reference to propitiation. It's a place where God's wrath was propitiated on the mercy seat once a year on the Day of Atonement. So Romans 3.25, I was talking instead of turning there. We have a use here of a propitiation. Whom God displayed publicly. So this is talking about Christ Jesus. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God do that? God's a holy judge. How can He let sinners go free? Because Christ has set aside the wrath of the Father. He has turned it aside. He has took our place. We deserved, we deserved to suffer forever. Christ suffered on the cross for us. Hebrews 2.13. That's another use here. Hebrews 2.13. Propitiation. Or as a former pastor once pronounced it, propitiation. It's not the best way to say it. Propitiation is best. Where are we going? Hebrews 2, 17. Now this is a really good one because it tells us not only what he did, but who he was. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. The Son of God had to take on flesh. He couldn't come as just the Son of God in his divinity and do what he had to do. He had to be like us, it says. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he makes propitiation. He is a propitiation. He's not only the high priest, but he's the sacrifice too. He is the high priest. He brings himself as a sacrifice. He dies. And part of that, one of the doctrines there that come from the cross, one of the things he did is to turn aside the wrath of God. And then the third one's in 1 John as well. 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. John's talking, I think, here to those he's writing to. John himself and the people he's writing to. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The propitiation for all believers in the whole world. Everyone. Not all unbelievers. That can't be the case because to propitiate means to take away the wrath of God, to turn it aside. So if God through Christ turned aside the wrath for all people, even unbelievers, what does that mean? Everybody's going to heaven. That's a universalist favorite passage. That's not what it means though. For our sins, John says, for for those he's writing to, and all throughout the world, think of all the believers that would ever believe in the world. Don't think it's, It's just something that happens in Asia Minor, something that happens in Jerusalem and Israel. All those who would believe. And then the fourth occurrence is in our passage here. Propitiation is simply Christ satisfied God's righteous anger against us. 
God was angry because of our sin. That's why people don't like this doctrine. They don't like to think of God as angry. God is a God of love. God is a God of affirmation. God is whoever you want him to be. But the Bible says God is angry. He's wrathful over sin. Propitiation deals with that wrath. What this means for us is if we trust it in Christ as our Savior, then God's wrath has been satisfied. You'll be disciplined for your sin, but God's not going to pour out his wrath on you as a Christian. When you sin, God will turn you back to himself and you'll still end up in heaven with eternal life, with Christ forever. As a Christian, you don't have to struggle every day as God's wrath upon me for my sin. Now, his discipline can be pretty bad. That can be hard for us. We can think this must be God's wrath, but trust me, it's not. God's wrath is much worse than the discipline he might put on a believer in this life. God's wrath is satisfied by God's love, by the sending of God's Son to die for us. This is the gospel. God did it all. He does everything, every step of the way. That's why John could say in 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. He's already satisfied the wrath of God. It's been completed. It's been finished. That's what Jesus did on the cross. God loves sinners who are not worthy of his love at all. It's amazing. Here's what John MacArthur said to summarize verse 10. God gave up his son and his son gave up his own life for us. It's that simple. What's the gospel? That God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. That he turned aside the wrath of God and that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we would be saved. We would have eternal life. We would not have to suffer God's wrath. You see, in in Numbers, they knew God's wrath. They could see it. God was angry. People started to fall over dead. Today, we see hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, and we say that's not God. God would never do that. Jesus says God does these things, Luke 13, to get our attention. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that people die and animals die to get our attention, to wake us up. Just because God's not speaking to Moses, who then tells us that's why everybody's dying, to teach us a lesson. We see it right here in Scripture, though, don't we? Have you experienced the love of God here? Have you experienced what this verse is talking about? Or are you under the wrath of God? There's something to think about tonight as we're gathered here. You're hearing this message. This love I have described here today. There's only one way to have it. One way to access it. It's through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It only comes through Christ. Now you might say, I've heard that all my life. But are you born again is the question. It's not just a mental affirmation. But are you born again? Do you have new desires? Are you living as a sign of the love of God? As John said in verse 9 of the passage we looked at. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Are you truly following Him? If you have, then you can celebrate with us tonight. And it is a truly a good Friday. If you haven't, if you're, if you're not following Christ, if you haven't trusted in Him, if you haven't turned from your sinful life, it's not a good Friday. It's a bad Friday. Because you just heard about the wrath of God, and the more knowledge you have about that, the more God holds that 
over your head and holds you accountable. Trust in Christ. Why not? 2021 could be your second birthday. First you were born in the flesh, and then you were born of the Spirit. If you are believers here today, then uh, thank the Lord for what he's done for you. Come back on Sunday, hear about the resurrection. Because it doesn't stop, the gospel doesn't stop with just the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ. They're both essentials of the gospel. Lord, just sit here in, in wonder and amazement that you could do this for us. We were your enemies. We were against you, Father. Either through our life, our words, our thoughts, or all of the above, we were against you. And yet, while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die. And he died for us. And Christ Jesus, you died for us. And Holy Spirit, you came to change our hearts. The Trinity, a wonderful doctrine. Thank you, Father, for teaching us tonight. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember the death of Christ every day we live. He is our life. In his name we pray. Amen.